I'm excited today to be joined by another one of my business partners and good friend, Alex Popa, co-founder and CEO of Boast.ai. We're going to talk about bootstrapping a startup to over eight figures in revenues and then deciding, hey, why don't we scale even further with a Series A round and bringing in $23 million of funding. And then on top of that, bringing in another $100 million in debt financing so that they could set up their own debt fund that they could service their own clients with. Three, two, one. Hey, what's up, everyone? We are live again today with another episode of Founder Journey. Actually, I say live, but we're not live. It's pre-recorded. <laughs> today, we've got uh, one of my business partners, good friend, Alex Popa. Alex is the co-founder of Boast.ai. And I'll let him kind of go into what Boast does, but it's an amazing company, amazing service. I've been fortunate enough to see them build this company from uh, the very, very early stages. Uh, they are, uh, Boast AI is a co-founder of our Traction Conference. So Alex and I have worked together quite closely on a lot of projects, uh, especially around Traction Conference. Uh, don't mistake Alex Popa for Alex Schwang, my other co-founder. <laughs> so uh, two Alexes on the team is, is fun, but, uh, this Alex is uh, very thoughtful and methodical. He's built an amazing business. They uh, recently announced a raise uh, that they uh, put together for their company. Uh, we'll dive into that uh, in a bit. But uh, Alex, welcome to Founder Journey. Uh, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh, Boast.ai. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, Alex, a proper name, so hard to keep track. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so at, at Boast.ai, uh, Boast we help companies uh, identify and claim R&D tax credits. So automate the complicated process of uh, applying and defending research and development tax credits in the US and Canada. Um, that's, that's, our, that's our mission. And uh, that's, that's what we've, we've done really well for the past uh, eight years or so. Yeah, and, and that's sure. it's, it's, it, it started as just an idea. You guys bootstrapped this company for quite a long time. And um, one of the journeys that you took, like you started off as a service-based business and you ended up productizing that service and now you're building a platform. Yeah, so, so I, I knew the R&D tax space really well, was in that, that space for a few years and, and managed some, some large teams across, across Canada, uh, providing that uh, consulting service. And uh, I knew there was a better way to do this and uh, you know, there's a way to automate it and, and really save client's time. Um, it's a very onerous uh, task on, on the clients, even if they do use external consultants. And I thought there was a better way to, to automate it and, and really provide a higher quality deliverable. So um, through, the, through the process of uh, you know, starting this business, uh, I, we decided, Lloyd and I decided that uh, we, should, we, should, uh, we should build a nice consulting team and, and trying to find uh, the optimal processes in terms of deliverables and uh, you know, uh, meeting our objectives, which is to save our clients time and provide, uh, you know, maximize claim value and create defensible R&D claims. And uh, once we've done that, we decided to, uh, to start building the, the technology and, and the platform that, that we currently have. Um, and uh, it's, it's been a journey that, that has taken quite a while, but the one thing that was really important for us is to stay bootstrapped, uh, as you mentioned, and we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into that, but um, we didn't want the external funding. We wanted to stay bootstrapped. So that meant that we had to, we had to be profitable from, from day one. Um, our fuel to grow was the net income of the business. So even though the business always did really well and was profitable year over year, it doesn't mean that you know, we, we took the money out and uh, you know, had nice lifestyles. It, it was quite the opposite, right? Um, 
it just meant that we had more more fuel to to throw on the fire and and keep on growing. So, uh, you know, we've been growing at uh, you know roughly about 100 percent every year, and um, you know now we're in in the eight figure range or well over that, uh, well over the low eight figure range, I guess now uh, in revenue, and we're still uh, still continuing to do that profitably, but. Uh, recently, we decided to, to change things up a little bit with some external investment. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what do you want to know about that? That's, that's yeah, so that's a big, of... big shift. So I, I definitely want to talk to you about your journey and, and the, the path that you took and the decisions that you had to make. But before we get into that, for our audience, if, if you're not in the tech space, um, the R&D tax credits are a major, major source of non-dilutive funding. And uh, they... Be become instrumental for a lot of companies. A lot of the big companies that you look at, they really rely on these tax credits in those early years to help fuel their growth and, and R&D development. And um, especially with Boast. So we're not just talking about Boast in this context. You have also had a front row seat for the clients that you've been helping. And so you've worked directly with a lot of CEOs. You've seen the journey that they've taken, the decisions that, that they've made. Uh, a lot of times bootstrapping is probably something that they should have done, but they took money. Um, but when you're not in the tech industry, <clears throat> you really don't have a lot of other alternatives but to bootstrap and, and to be very methodical of how do you bring in revenue. It's kind of more prevalent in the tech industry where you're able to get venture backers and angel backers to finance the development of your product before you're able to sell. But in traditional businesses, uh, you, you've had to rely on your ability to sell and, and generate revenues. Um, and that's the path that both took. But what a, what is it that you've seen the most that you kind of cringe at or you, you, you don't agree with with companies and the path that they've taken? Um, you yeah, don't so want to name just, any of your clients, but you've, you've got yeah. a lot of clients and a lot of really yeah. high profile clients. And, and what is it that you've seen that are lessons learned? Yeah, so, so from the beginning, just working with hundreds of clients and company owners, CEOs, uh, you know, seeing them through the journey of raising capital or bootstrapping, uh, you know, less often, but but still happens once in a while. Uh, there, there are a ton of lessons learned, and you know, the the one thing is every entrepreneur makes different mistakes, which is which is great. It's fine. Um, it would be terrible to see the same. You know, every entrepreneur make the same mistake over and over again. But um, but but that's where you come in and automate, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there there are there are some common common themes though. Um, you know, uh, raising raising money at valuations that uh, you know don't you know you can can meet expectations on right. If uh, you know you're raising uh, raising raising money with uh, certain multiples, uh, uh, you know guaranteed multiples to to those investors, you better make sure you can surpass that uh, that valuation in the next you know 18 months or whatever your bandwidth is uh, if you've gone down the venture capital route, right? Um, you know, otherwise, uh, that's sort of the biggest problem we see. Or raising, uh, you know, the, the other big one is, uh, uh, especially in Canada and some of the, the Canadian markets, is raising capital uh, with just weird terms, uh, you know, where um, it, it ends up being sort of angel investors or, uh, you know, high net worth individuals that, uh, that provide capital with just strange terms like convertible debt, uh, you know that that expected to hit some ridiculous valuation within the next couple of years or something, and uh, that basically uh, you know makes you un uh, uninvestable at some point, right? Um, unless you really smoke it and hit it out of the water, out of the park, uh, you know it's uh, it's going to be tough to raise future rounds of funding that you need, right? Yeah. 
And that's the thing that a lot of first-time entrepreneurs especially don't realize or don't recognize is the fact that the decisions that you make early on can really hamper future investment rounds. Like it's yeah. it's tough as an entrepreneur. You, you, it's hard to see over the next three months when you're running out of money and, and you've got somebody that's excited to put some money into you and you get excited uh, and you accept the terms, but you realize, well, this is not actually a sophisticated investor or, or like I take that back. A lot, a lot of the angel investors are successful in their own right, in their own industries. But a lot of times when they start diving into tech, they're bringing in concepts or procedures that are typical in their own industry, mining or whatever, yeah. but don't translate into tech. But that's how they're used to investing. And they're the ones that are writing the checks. So they kind of control the terms. But you as the entrepreneur um, need to do your homework. And, and a lot of times we've seen this they've taken that big check, but when it comes to that VC round, the VC is gonna say, oh, that's excited as we are, there's too much baggage here or there's challenges. You have to do all this restructuring and then the angel gets upset and they don't wanna do restructuring and it just kills your deal. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we see that a lot. And it's usually, like you said, uh, investors from other industries that have put together funds that say, now, now I'm a tech investor. Uh, but they they do bring in that mentality from from the the previous industry that they they're experienced with, and that just doesn't work in tech, right? Where you know your real runway is supposed to be sixteen months, eighteen months, whatever it is, and then raise again, right? Um, so uh, you know it's those are the the big challenges that I think kill a lot of companies that we see uh, quite often, and uh, and you know the the second biggest challenge is is obviously uh, you know the the founding team and and how they work together and how they navigate that uh, sort of changing relationship, right? Um, it's the same with, with any relationship that changes over time and uh, how you navigate that change and, and you know, that give and take on, on every side is, is really important. So it takes, uh, it, it really does take a, a team to, to make everything work and happen. And uh, every relationship that you build in, in, in your company is, is really important. And um, you know, some of them can make or break the company, right? Um, especially the founder relationships. So mm -hmm. those are those are the two main themes that we constantly see with entrepreneurs uh, as they they you know they seem successful and all of a sudden overnight they kind of you know you you see this company just sort of go away right. Um, it's usually one of those two things that kill them. Uh, it it's less 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 often uh, or it's it's pretty rare to have you know companies that do well and all of a sudden revenue dries up right um you know that's more of a COVID type of situation i guess and even then they external factors or other third per third party issues that contribute to that as opposed to yeah success metrics they have internally right those are rare right the external factors are rare so the factors that you can control as an entrepreneur are probably the most common reason why companies fail in general if you found your market you know you eliminate all those those in, important variables early on um you, the companies end up failing because of, you know, in, interesting investments or, or uh, you know, venture investments or just partners not, you know, uh, not not getting along, right? I'm sure in so, your experience, you've probably seen the same thing. <laughs> definitely. So I'll get back to talking about uh, Boast and the industry in a second. A successful entrepreneur, and I've known you for a while, and, and um, success isn't just measured by, hey, I've been able to raise money. Like you guys have helped a lot of companies and made a good business doing so in, in that journey. And I know you're uncomfortable talking about yourself. You're a lot more passionate talking about other people, but yeah. I'm going to make you uncomfortable and I want to talk about you. So, so you're originally from Romania. Thanks for that. You, 
you, you originally from Romania, you relocated to Canada with your family. And uh, tell, tell us about that culture shock and, and coming to Canada. And uh, I believe you guys first moved to Toronto or was it Toronto, Montreal? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Toronto. So, so moved to Toronto when I was 13 years old, didn't speak a word of English, nothing. And I remember the second day, once, uh, uh, second day in Canada, I was, uh, I had to go to school. So, you know, my dad dropped me and my brother off at school and said, you know, have a nice day. How about right? it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. That's, that's how I was, right? Uh, within, within a couple of months, we had friends. We spoke enough English to sort of get along and build relationships. And it's, uh, we adapted, right? Is that, uh, so that resilience, I guess. Um, and, and it's not unique to us. It's just, uh, uh, that's what happens to, to, I guess, every kid, right? When you mm -hmm. put them in a new situation. So, um, you know, and uh, most of my time I spent in Toronto, uh, you know, until uh, that's where I met Lloyd as well. So uh, met Lloyd right after high school, uh, went to Humber College engineering technology program. Um, and then uh, and then we went to university in uh, Thunder Bay, Lakehead, where, where my brother actually lives, still lives now. He lives in Thunder Bay. Um, so we had, uh, we had quite, quite an experience and even the, the culture experience of moving to Thunder Bay or the, uh, so the, the culture difference is there, right. From Toronto, it's, uh, it's a, it's a massive difference. And, uh, it's, it's something I really enjoyed. I, I, I like, I, I like change. So, you know, I, I think in the past, you know, 15 years, my wife and I constantly talk, uh, you know, joke around how, uh, joke about the fact that we've moved around once a year on average <laughs> for the past 15 years, which, you know, it's, uh, it's unusual, right? And uh, we moved to you know lots of lots of Canadian cities, so Montreal, uh, you know Waterloo, Guelph, Calgary, Vancouver, sort of been all over Canada, I guess. And so before we get into the journey to Calgary, uh, you you at Humber you uh, took computer science and you're you're an actually you're an engineer, and you can code. Software engineering, yeah, yeah, but you you can code, but you uh, didn't go down. The engineering path you went to uh yeah. one of the big four accounting yeah. firms right yeah so I, i've been a coder since i can remember so basically within i think a year or two of moving to canada so i was maybe like grade nine when i started coding and i took uh, i remember taking college courses to learn how to code in c and c plus plus and uh you know so I've, I've been coding forever i i, I really enjoy it that's sort of the passion right um but after university yeah i, I went down the path of IT leadership, uh, took, took a job in an IT leadership development program at Johnson Johnson. And that's like a two year rotation program where every 10 months or so they move you to a different operating company within Johnson Johnson. And uh, you know, you get high profile projects to, to execute within that 10 month period. And you get a whole bunch of mentorship and coaching and public speaking coaching, which probably doesn't, uh, doesn't come across at all, but <laughs> I, I forget a lot, you know, <laughs> selective memory there. So. Uh, but, but you, you know, it's supposed to make you a well-rounded, I guess, sort of leader within their organization, right? Within Johnson Johnson organization. So, uh, so that's, that's what I did, which was much more focused on project management and, and sort of uh, management in general than, uh, than hands-on coding, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, after, after two and a half years or three years at Johnson Johnson, I decided that, uh, I needed to start, uh, start another company. And, uh, I went off and started a company called Work Envy and that was, uh, location-based job search uh, back at the, in the times when literally mobile was just coming out. And, uh, you know, we got some great, great customers, you know, like uh, it was about 30 uh, multinational clients like Winners, Care Group, uh, McDonald's and so on. 
Um, the problem was monetizing it. So, you know, like about eight months, nine months into the business, we I had the platform all done. So I was the only developer. So I, you know, I got that all pushed out, but soon realized that, you know, we had, we had users, we had, uh, you know, app, job applicants, we had jobs, uh, thousands of jobs and uh, no way to make money off of it. Uh, so Just take a step back here. So this was on mobile. But back then, this is you're talking about Nokia, BlackBerry, talking about Sony Ericsson. So this is not iPhone, yeah. it's not touchscreen. That's right. So iPhone was just coming out at the time, and uh, it was uh, you know timing was was pretty good. It worked out okay. Uh, usability was was great, and you know we still had a ton of desktop users, of course, right? Uh, that was still the, the main driver, and mobile was kind of slowly creeping in. Um, the, the problem really wasn't uh, on the, it wasn't the technology, it wasn't the platform, all that stuff worked well, it was great. It wasn't even the sales, you know, sales worked, we, we had clients. The problem was there was no business model where you could actually monetize. Uh, you know, nobody, these companies, uh, you know, hire on mass, they hire thousands of employees like every month. Uh, and uh, they also have huge turnovers. That's the reason they hire so much. Uh, and they just don't want to pay a lot of money for, for each job applicant. Um, the scale that we would have had to be at to actually turn a profit uh, was was fairly ridiculous. Uh, and for us to get there, we would have required a ton of venture backing. And uh, and I decided that it just wasn't uh, wasn't something I wanted to to do. And uh, that's when I basically folded that business. So coming out of that, I said, you know, I can't believe I missed the business model part. You know, uh, like having a sound <laughs> business model like that, that's that's. Hindsight, yeah. you're like, that, oh, that was stupid. <laughs> but, well, just, uh, but, but in that easy, time, right? Yeah, it sounds easy. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it sounds so easy, so basic. The problem is I still run into entrepreneurs today that are super smart and totally missed that, right? Um, or, or they think the market will catch up in some way or, you know, they'll figure it out later, right? Everybody thinks they're Facebook, right? Um, so, uh, you know, coming out of that, I need to, to know more about the finance world and decide to go study accounting. Uh, to to get my foot in the door there, and that's how I got into R and D tax. It's called the cross between accounting and engineering and, and software engineering. So um, that's when I started uh, started doing R and D tax work and started as a consultant. And you know, this became uh, the national practice leader for one one the uh, one of a company that used to be our competitor. We don't see them as often anymore. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that was my my entry into that uh, that world. And I want to talking about boast again a little bit, but uh, I think a lot of people view you as a competitor. I'm talking about some of the um, accounting firms and whatnot, but you don't see them as a competitor because yeah. they're totally swimming in a different lane. They don't understand what you guys are doing. But before I get there, what uh, before we talk about that, what are your thoughts on learning to code and, and the ability to code for not just entrepreneurs, but just anybody in general? Like, you you did this very early on. You were comp sci engineer, but then you went into business accounting. Is is the need to learn how to code essential moving forward, or are there alternatives? Like, what are your thoughts on this? I'm not going to go against the grain on this one. Absolutely essential, right? Um, you know, in the very various levels, right? Like, you know, you're not going to become a full stack engineer and truly understand the assembly language and all that fun stuff, right? Uh, that's, that's just not the need that most people have, right? Um, that's a very valuable skill, but that's not the need that most people have. But learning how to how to code, how to interact with, uh, you know, with uh, slightly more sophisticated, uh, you know, applications and platforms that do expose some of that functionality to you, even 
you know, just basic SQL queries and things like that. Like, I mean, there's some level of understanding everybody should have. It's just basic knowledge nowadays. You need to have it, right? Um, it, it, it's creeping up into everything we do now. E even, you know, end user uh, applications and platforms, they're supposed to make life easier. Uh, always have a sort of backup ex exposing a little bit more sophisticated uh, application or, or uh, technology that you probably need to have some level of coding understanding. Right? Yeah, <clears throat> you and I obviously were business partners, so we have a very similar line of thinking. Uh, one of the ways I like to put it out to people is, if you're English speaking and you're gonna go build a company and, and launch products in Spain, do you think you can effectively do that without knowing Spanish? No, and you don't have to be extremely uh, you know, fluent it's... in Spanish, but you do need to know how to properly communicate with people or what people are saying to you so that you don't get ripped off. So learning just, just the, basics of what is code what is java what is rails um i but i equate those basics more to understanding the culture like you know to use your analogy going to spain how can you go into a country without speaking the language you can probably get around that you know by hiring somebody that does but you cannot as a tourist go to that. yeah but, but to run a business right but you know to 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 formulate uh, you know strategy and 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 you know, really uh have a have a sound approach to doing it you need to understand the culture. You need to understand the buying habits of your your mm -hmm. customer and so on. And that's that's uh, that's uh, you know it's the same with with basic uh, basic coding, right? Uh, just uh, it's a way to you for you to understand how everything is built and uh, a way for you to start troubleshooting when you do run into problems. Right? And speaking about problems, <laughs> what <laughs> what was the the big problem that you saw in the market when you created both? Like what what sparked you say? Screw it! I'm going to go solve this problem by myself or with my partner. Yeah. Well, I, I saw you know, you know there, there was a clear problem, right? So the consulting model is broken. It's it's very cumbersome, uh, and it's relying on the clients to to basically spoon feed this consultant. So a lot of efforts put on the client to prepare these R&D claims. Uh, that was that was a, a very evident problem that everybody was trying to solve, and everybody was trying to solve it by just throwing more more bodies at the problem rather than technology. Um, and the companies that, that, that attempt to, to throw technology at it, um, you know, were just didn't have the DNA. They, they weren't software companies. They were, they were traditional either accounting firms or consulting firms that uh, kind of uh, thought of technology as an afterthought and didn't really have any technology leadership within their own organizations to be able to pull it off, right? Um, so, you know, we saw that, saw that problem and, and we really decided that we can do it. You know, we're our background as a software engineer. We're thinking in terms of, you know, uh, uh, what, what problems can technology solve next in, in our own lives? And this was just a very obvious one, right? Uh, so that's, that's what got us into, into uh, starting Boast. And, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I spent about a year and a half planning for this. Uh, that's really interesting. Before we actually like hit the ground running, I spent a year and a half planning for it trying to recruit, uh, you know, Lloyd and, and other business partners uh, that had uh, complementary skills to me that I knew I could work with. Uh, and, and I was wrong on some of them, but uh, that's okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, was, I was looking for somebody that could be the face of the company that could be out there, you know, doing this, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, doing all the public speaking and, and really the social media outreach. You know, it's, it's a really important part of it. Uh, part, of, part of the business, of course, being visible, it's, it's super important. Uh, but how you get that visibility, I think, to, in my opinion, is less important, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the rockstar CEO that gets that visibility. It, it can be, uh, you know, spread within the organization as well. Right? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a key part is, is complementary skill sets and finding people that can fill those gaps that uh, you either don't have or you don't have a desire to do, right? Like you said, you, you do have some public speaking <laughs> education yeah. and experience, but it's not something that uh, you, you relish in. And so if yeah. you can find partners that are really excited about the limelight, like Lloyd is, then, uh, <laughs> then, yeah. then that's a good thing. Um, but and then not everybody's lucky to find somebody like Lloyd that that really uh, you know excels at, at that stuff, right? So that's uh, but but you know the, the idea is even if you have partners that don't necessarily excel at at sort of public speaking or you know the uh, put, putting your company out there, splitting it up or, across ma- multiple team members uh, can be can be much more uh, fruitful and you you'll get much better results I think than struggling through if you're just not very good at it, right? And that also takes some discipline and, and being able to delegate. A lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the early days, have to do everything on their own. But when it comes to time to scale and grow their business, just being able to delegate and, and let go of some of that control is challenging. And that's and a that's constant some, struggle. Yeah, that's something that you had to struggle with recently. Uh, but yeah. before we get into that, I want to get back to the start of, of both. So you guys started in Calgary, and I, like why Calgary and yeah. uh, what did you recognize in, in that market? Yeah. So that one year and a half of planning uh, that, that I did was uh, part of that was uh, really identifying the right market that, uh, you know, had a significant number of potential clients uh, and also had the least number of competitors uh, or at least had competitors that uh, they were at the right scale for us to, to go, go up against. So, Calgary, uh, you know, Alberta in general was was the one place that, uh, you know, it was oil and gas, uh, majority oil and gas driven. All the focus from every consulting firm, every technology firm was really on the oil and gas sector and everything else, everything else was ignored. So technology was ignored. And uh, the tech, tech sector and tech space was uh, was really starting to, to come along and, and become more significant. And we thought that we could go and service that and, and have a relatively low, uh, barrier to entry there and uh and that's what it was yeah so we were right about it which is good so so it shows you that uh if anybody listening you don't have to be in a major market to get something off the ground and find success um you don't have to be in san francisco you don't have to be in vancouver you can be in smaller markets like calgary but you do have to come to a certain point where you are the big fish in the small pond and realize that and move to a bigger pond so that you can grow and so how was that jump to Vancouver? Like what, what prompted that? Yeah, we, we always knew we were going to come back to, to Vancouver. That's the market that I knew. So when I moved to Calgary from after living in Vancouver for three and a half years, so I knew the Vancouver market well. Um, so we, we always knew we were going to come back into Vancouver as a first market to go to after Calgary. And uh, the, the push was just, uh, it was financial. It was just opportunistic. So as soon as we had the resources and found the partner, um, you know, on the ground in Vancouver, that's, that's what we did. And it was, it was, it was within the year. Um, and, and that was the logical step. The, the, the less logical step or the harder decision was going to Toronto. Uh, so tackling the Toronto market, you know, massive market obviously requires a lot more resources, um, you know, more competitive. And uh, that was a harder decision. And, and Lloyd, you know, for a long time, he, uh, you know, he pushed to go into that market. He always wanted to go in as much earlier than I did. And uh, you know the 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 decision was really based around resources. So as soon as we had enough resources to do it, um, 
that we, you know, it was a market market definitely worth going after, but uh, we knew it just required a lot of resources to to go into. The and market. even though we before you big, right? before you went to Toronto, you, Lloyd being based in San Francisco, you you were already looking at the U.S. market as well. So kind of really focusing on the West Coast, yeah. and then making a yeah, shift yeah. to the East Coast. For sure, we we went after the, the the U.S. market before we went after the Toronto market. Uh, so so we had a really West Coast focus for for quite a long time. Uh, it was just the easier concentration of resources. Um, you know, we we didn't have to. Uh, uh, we, we we still had low hanging fruit uh, on the West Coast, and there was just no reason to expand uh, out east and really uh, dilute the resource pool, uh, marketing resources, sales resources, and so on. And just for the audience's knowledge, uh, for you that are not in Canada, um, the Canadian R&D tax program is a lot more robust and, and offers a lot more uh, rebate. To, I think it's like 15% in the US, 65% in Canada. And so- 65% cash back in Canada. So if you're a startup, uh, you get a check, you know, spend a hundred thousand on R&D, you'll get a check back for 65,000. Uh, that can enable you to to grow at you know two three times the pace that you would in in a place like uh, the U.S. where it's a, it's around ten to fifteen percent depending on the state you're in and it's not cash back it's towards payroll offset so you have to be a much larger company to really take advantage. Let's see, always be selling. I was just trying to give a high level overview. <laughs> you just dove right into hey, what's the sale? Why you want to be in Canada? Why you want to take the cash for tax rate? But that's that's why uh, breaking into the Toronto market was so important for you because as a major Canadian city, the size of the contracts that you'd win and, and the work that you're gonna do on an ongoing basis is that much larger than trying to go from San Francisco to say New York, because yeah. um, it's, it's a totally different ballgame. And talking about growth, like you guys built this bootstrap company, you've got this platform coming out, but you had to make a decision of, do you continue to bootstrap or do you bring in external funding? And this was probably a little bit of a harder decision given that you've seen so many uh, horror stories or challenges or issues with the companies that you worked with, giving up equity too early and, and bringing in third-party investors, um, especially ones that didn't understand your industry and then how they totally derail the company. And so walk us through that dialogue in your head that you went through um, trying to make those decisions. Is this the right step for me and my company? Is this the right timing for this as well. I'll, I'll take you back a little bit. So the decisions, uh, uh, it's actually, uh, the, the reason we, we didn't really uh, ever consider external capital until now was, uh, was, was because of focus. So, uh, you know, we were uh, a premier offering, uh, you know, so on the on position on the higher end of the market, high quality, uh, you know, high deliverables and so on. Uh, so, for us to really stick to that business model was always a challenge through the years, uh, you know, even within within our own team, you know, from sales and everything else. It's hard for sales guys to sort of give away what they perceive to be good business um, just because it doesn't meet certain criteria for us, uh, you know, in terms of growth, size and so on. Um, and, and that was always a challenge to, to make sure we stay focused and, and keep our, our strategy intact and deliver on that and, and sort of see it through. And I always thought that external funding will totally distract from that. I mean, you know, if you look at traditional VC, it's all about growth at all costs. And that's exactly what we didn't want to do. It wasn't growth at all costs. It was, uh, it was quality growth. That meant a lot to us. Uh, that's what allowed us to, uh, you know, to, to go, uh, 
you know, towards the, the higher end of the market. Uh, and so go up market, of course, enterprise and so on. Um, and that being a struggle, even within the team over the years, constantly, um, I always thought that external venture funding would just add to that struggle and that headache. And, uh, you know, the, the one thing that, that really changed was uh, obviously COVID, you know, we're a company that does really well through, through a down, downturns. Everybody's looking for ex extra capital, external sources of financing and, you know, grants and, and tax, uh, tax, tax credits and so on. So we do well and we do well in good times as well. So we're pretty fortunate that way. Um, you know, we're very grateful and we try to try to, to help anybody along in these times, but uh, that, that also enabled us to really hit our, our, our revenue targets and uh, position ourselves in a way where, uh, you know, it, if we found the right partner ever, not that we were looking, we were able to, uh, to sort of pull the trigger and, and, and get external funding and add some fuel to the fire, grow, grow much faster, easier, fill gaps on the executive team and so on. Uh, you know, like CTO and, and other areas that, that we've been lacking a little bit and sort of struggling along with. Um, and we, uh, you know, serendipitously met uh, Radiant Capital. Um, so, you know, Chris uh, Livingston and, and Jordan Bettman there. And uh, we're so aligned, you know, the, the basically the philosophy is keep on doing what you're doing and everybody's going to win. Uh, and, and we agree. That's, that was literally the, you know, the, as soon as I heard keep on doing what you're doing and we're going to win, I'm, I'm thinking, well, yeah, okay. So it's just an execution risk, right? It's, uh, you know, do things better, of course, always do things better, but um, but the, the the alignment was was there in terms of you know market uh, you know market segment uh, you know uh, business model uh, doesn't have to be put on its head and then changed in any significant way um, and we just need to keep on capitalizing on opportunities that come along of course but um, but there's just no no major uh, unrooting of the business model which was my big concern right. Uh, it's just so easy for anybody from the outside to look at our business and say, you know, you could be like two, three times the number of clients or it's like size revenue wise. Uh, why aren't you right? Like, why, why would you turn it down? And uh, the short answer there is because we will be two, three times with zero profit uh, or, or negative profit. You know, we will be burning through cash to, you know, for customer acquisition. So, uh, and it's just, you know, there's just no path to profitability when you do that in our business. Our business is not a market. It's not a winner take all market. Um, so it's not, it's not a massive land grab type of environment where you know, we want to be the dominant players and the only player in the market. We're already the dominant player in the market. Uh, and I'm sure we'll never be the only player in the market. We'll be the best player in the market. I know that, uh, but we can maintain our, our margins and ability to grow and, and further invest in technology and really serve our clients, right? Uh, as soon as we roll those margins away, we we basically shoot ourselves in the foot. We we can't innovate. We can't serve our clients, right? And finding a investment partner that understands that is critical. And I think you kind of glossed over. You said that <clears throat> they said keep doing what you're doing, and and that's all that you need to hear. That's not all that you need to hear. I know you, and I know how much due diligence you did on the background yeah. of the company and and the type yeah. of investments. Um, did you get a chance to talk to some of their other portfolio companies? I think that's a yeah. step that a lot of companies don't take is, is listening to some of the other people that they've invested in and, and how they were to work yeah. with and what their philosophies are. So we built great relationship with some of those uh, other portfolio companies through the process. That's how much we talked to them. And so it went through every level, you know, CTO, CFO, CEO, right? Uh, anybody that basically interacted with the board just to, to, to hear the, the, the pressures and the interactions and, 
um, you know, the, the, what kind of relationships were built and value, what kind of value was added. And, uh, you know, we've, uh, we spoke to uh, additional prior portfolio companies, if, if like uh, investors were at different firms. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there was overwhelming positive feedback. And the, the interesting part and in the, the, the approach I liked about Radiant is they literally gave us a list of all of their investments, plus a bunch of investments that they've done with other firms a long time ago. And uh, they said, pick and choose whoever you want to talk to or talk to all of them. They didn't curate the, the, the list and they didn't eliminate anybody off and the list. And then cherry pick and say, oh, no, just talk to this person. You know, it's so easy to do that, right? And and that's what most investors will do, of course. And, you know, for interest of, uh, you know, for simplicity's sake, I guess a lot of them will do that. And I, you know, I appreciated the fact that they were just really open and, and honest and, you know, even open with some of the struggles. Like if they, you know, they had a struggle in the past and, you know, an investment that didn't sort of go as planned or whatever it may be, which is, is not many, of course, but uh, they were very honest about it. They, 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 you know, they opened up, they, they talked about it. They allowed us access to those, uh, you know, they made introductions to those CEOs and uh, were able to, uh, to, to really, uh, really make an informed decision, right? Make an informed decision and, and really validate our gut feeling. That's, that's mm -hmm. got, it always goes back to our gut feeling, right? You know, you meet somebody and, uh, you know, you know if you're aligned or not. I mean, you can have a conversation, and uh, what you need to do is just validate that feeling, right? You know, if you feel really good about them and you, you think you can work with them, you know that uh, you know you're aligned uh, uh, on on your principles and uh, the way that, that that you like to approach, uh, you know, the challenges ahead. Then just validate it. Validate it. You know, go through that due diligence process to validate. But if you meet somebody and you're not sure, and you know you're on the fence and you just you're kind of neutral on it. The, the process is not going to make you love them, right? Um, you know, so maybe move on if you're in that in a position where you can, right? And, and again, great uh, segue there, the being in a position that you can, like because you bootstrap, because you built your company to a profitable state where you didn't need to take the money, but uh, you saw the advantages of being able to take the money and what you could do with it. You were also put yourself in a position where you guys raised 30 million, but all from one investor. Typical $30 million rounds are from multiple investors and you've got multiple people that want to sit on your board. You were in the power seat and you were able to kind of dictate some terms and ultimately just raise the money with one investor. Like that's yeah. a huge, huge accomplishment. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, but yes, uh, you know, again, it goes back to that, that same fear I had before. You know, the, more, the more people at the table, um, the, the more likely you are to uh, to be distracted and and dilute down your your uh, you know your business model your theory um, and um, you know having having the opportunity to do it from one I'll do it from one it's uh, it's it's that that simple right um, I know some uh, you know there, there's some entrepreneurs that see the value in multiple investors and, and you know there, there's a thought there that it makes sense you know having having more uh, more people advocating for you and and really helping you out and you know there, there's value in doing that as well but but there are other ways to get get that value, uh, rather than having an investor that that ultimately does have a lot of influence, right? Uh, you know, as a shareholder, you have to treat them just like you treat yourself as a shareholder, right? If you step back out of the executive position, you're a shareholder too, right? So you have to sort of do the right thing. So, um, you know, having uh, limiting the number of shareholders is really important, and and it also helps if if, if you are planning to uh, to do future rounds of financing. Um, you know, the the fewer the better, right? In, in my opinion, and you can get investors, you can, yeah, so you can get advisors uh, or you can get, a, you know, independent board members and 
and other guys that there will be advocates on your behalf uh, the same way as an investor would. If they believe in your vision, there's don't, you know, high quality guys will have to buy and believe in your vision and believe in, in what you're doing. Uh, and if, uh, if they do that, then they'll, they'll advocate for you, right? No, definitely. Um, this has been a great conversation, Alex. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you don't like talking. I want to kind of wrap this up with two questions. And this is kind of common with all of our founder journeys is what are some apps or tools that uh, you found instrumental to your growth as an entrepreneur? It can be anything, but uh, something that our audience may not know of or underutilize uh, themselves that you think they should take another look apps at. And, apps and tools. Um, you know. Now you guys uh, don't use Slack. Uh, I, I'm we don't always use Slack. upset about that because <laughs> I use Slack and uh, yeah. commuting and you guys not through Slack is, is a bit of a challenge, yeah. but um, like maybe on that front, like what do you guys use internally? How do you guys communicate? Yeah, we, we use Workplace. Uh, so we, we use Workplace uh, chat and, and just the Workplace platform, which is basically Facebook uh, re, rebranded uh, for, uh, for enterprise. Um, and uh, it, it works really well, zero uh, learning curve. Everybody is familiar with the, the Facebook uh, UX and uh, usability and we can use it as internal uh, wiki and as well as Messenger and everything else that we need all in one place, which works extremely well for us. Um, but you know, honestly, over the years, the we did a lot of good things on the tool side and, and technology side. We uh, basically went with tools that were highly uh, customizable and flexible for us to grow grow with. Um, that were also fairly cheap and didn't require a whole lot of maintenance overhead. So we used things like you know Zoho CRM and uh, you know Zoho Analytics and uh, you know QuickBooks and a bunch of very common tools, but. Um, that's also kind of our Achilles heel now, right? Uh, because we're going through a process where we are, we are, uh, you know, standardizing all that into more enterprise level, uh, sort of tools. And uh, it's, it's just a bigger process and, um, obviously a very costly, costly thing to do. But, um, the one thing that enabled us to grow and scale and stay agile was the fact that we had very flexible tools, very flexible and, and uh, detailed reporting. And, and tools that, that we could adapt to whatever our needs were, right? Um, so, you know, a good example is uh, we, we also offer financing. So I, that's maybe something I, I didn't mention, but um, we do R&D financing. So uh, we provide like an R&D line of credits to our clients um, as they incur R&D spend through the year, they don't have to wait for a tax filing and the CRA to, to approve the, the return for them to, uh, to get the, the cash. So we, we can provide ahead of time. Um, and for us to be able to add a, a service like that on, um, you know, it, it was it was really simple, right? It was just identifying the, the right processes and uh, really building the technology around it was was easy because a lot of the technology we have is sort of, uh, you know, uh, third-party tools that, that help us on the reporting side, like, uh, you know, analytics, as, uh, data warehousing, and uh, our proprietary tool, obviously, that's... Uh, that, that one's, it's ours, so it's very flexible. <laughs> as long as we want to put in there for it. I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, to, to sort of answer your question. What are some well, I think the, the workplace is, is, is a great example. Like, especially if you're bootstrapped or if you're a smaller organization, Slack, um, well, Slack is easy to use as well, but uh, workplace was one that um, I, I know a lot of people kind of didn't think about integrating Facebook into their 
corporate culture and, and whatnot, but workplace did it. And now a lot of people are using Teams, which is kind of built off of the same fundamental um, principles. Exactly. Yeah, so um, I, you know, when we went through a selection process, I tried all the tools, right? Uh, you know, we tried Slack, we tried some of the Slack competitors, like they're very, very much like Slack. Um, tried, looked at Teams, looked at Workplace, and uh, we just found that uh, Workplace had the, you know, it just suited our needs at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, let's um, kind of wrap up here. If you were to give advice to an entrepreneur, and I know you talk to lots of entrepreneurs, what would you give as advice for somebody that's starting a new business today in today's world? And, and keep in mind, our audience are first-time entrepreneurs, but also seasoned entrepreneurs. Knowing what you know about the world today, uh, what would you, what's a one piece of advice that you want to give to entrepreneurs? Yeah, honestly, you know, focus, uh, stay focused and, and don't be distracted. And I hear this over and over from very successful entrepreneurs that build, you know, you know, unicorns, uh, multi-billion dollar companies. And the one advice that they give me after knowing my business well uh, has always been stay focused. So, you know, you talk about all this, this added sort of features or value to your clients, you know, like financing and data insights and other things, but, uh, but just don't forget that focus, right? Like you have a, you have a purpose, become the R and D system or record for your clients, um, you know, offer, offer that, uh, uh, the best you can and everything else you do, uh, is, is secondary, right? So they always say focus, right? They, they, they said, you know, one of the, the biggest, problems with a lot of companies is they're growing fast is, is staying focused right so maintain that focus and just be diligent about it you know make sure you remind yourself what your business model is and and why it is uh you know keep on revalidating it every year uh but uh but maintain that focus if it's still true maintain it right yeah and it's a lot easier said than done everybody says oh yeah, yeah i'll stay focused but you get so much content coming in whether it's from customers or other people saying oh you should do this oh it'd be great if this feature was there or uh, this button should go over here and well, you, you get distracted it, it's hard to turn down money right so you know we we've had uh you know partners and and clients offering us uh you know uh, good revenues or good margins to provide them value that is not core to our business and uh you know saying no to that is tough right um it could be somebody else's business for sure, uh, but uh, for the interest of, of resource allocation and you know really really fulfilling your vision, you need to stay focused. Right? Especially when you bootstrap, like every dollar counts. Yeah. But uh, that and even if you're not able to say no, yeah. And even if you're not, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you'll 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 burn your uh, you, even if you are venture back, you you'll go through your run rate uh, really quick and uh, and you won't meet your metrics. Uh, you're you're kind of be dead in the water at that point. Yeah. So. Staying focused is really important, right? Sweet, this is a great conversation. I wanna wrap it up with uh, a chance for you to have a call to action. What can our audience do for you? You've given them some insights some feedback and, and uh, a peek into your world. What can they do for you? Yeah, uh, in encourage, uh, encourage community events, uh, encourage community engagement in general. I think that's the number one, the number one piece and it's something that I try to do and, and we try to do as an organization in general and really try to support that. Any type of community engagement and giving back, uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Like you said, I don't like the public speaking side, but uh, but I love the one-on-ones and really providing, you know, if I, if I have some insight to provide, I, I would love to share it uh, with anybody. 
as long as it's good, you know, it's going to be beneficial to them in their communities. It's awesome, right? Um, so just just be engaged and uh, and encourage that diversity as well, right? Uh, you know, I, I uh, we 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 try to to make sure that uh, we we encourage diversity, whether it's you know uh, uh, you know women in engineering or uh, you know uh, anything else that uh, that uh, you know encouraging minorities uh, minorities uh, participation in in tech as well and, and everything that we do is, is super important as you know I, you you encourage it the same way and then you're just as yeah. vocal not a, you're you're an awesome advocate right yeah i think definitely the in-person stuff as we are recovering from COVID, our economies are coming back those live in-person events like having worked out of, out of your home for the last year and now uh trying to make your way back into the workforce or or real world in-person events are critical. We're trying to do our part with our traction events, our CXO events, but um, uh, I think there is a little bit of challenge to get back to where it was a year ago um, or two years ago now. Absolutely, yeah. But uh, you know, there's hope. There's light at the end of this tunnel. <laughs> awesome. Alex, this has been a great uh, conversation. Thanks for joining our Founder Journey event, our series, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at uh, some, some events. Thanks, I appreciate it, really enjoyed it. Launch Ventures is for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Founder Journey, please share this with your friends, family, and other entrepreneurs. If you're ready to start your own entrepreneurial journey and would like some guidance, please head to launchacademy.ca and check out our entrepreneurship course and other online resources like our Launchpad for virtual incubation and mentorship.